Jenny Lewis. And this is Alexa Adams-Robertson. And we're here talking about the third section of How It Went Down, which is pages 160 to 240, for those of you following along at home. Uh, and in this section, Alexa, we get to the funeral, Tariq's funeral. Right. Um, I think it's really interesting. We don't spend a lot of time hearing about the funeral itself. There's a lot of time following the people who were there, um, mm-hmm. especially the kings. And that kind of bothered me. How did you feel about that? Yeah, um, I think we both wrote in our notes for this section that we were really frustrated with the kings because it feels a lot like they're kind of glomming onto the attention, yeah. um, kind of in the same way that the reverend is, Absolutely. Um, where they're taking Tariq's death and they're trying to kind of leverage it in whatever ways that they can. They're taking, it takes focus away from Tariq and, right. and from his loss, which is really bothered me the most. Mm-hmm. And in the same section, kind of as a juxtaposition to that, we have um, Vernicia's finally letting herself break down and grieve. And as a mother, those are the hardest passages for me to read in this book. When, mm-hmm. when she says, um, there's a line, she says something like, my son wasn't perfect, but he was mine. Mm-hmm. And anger would be more bearable than the sorrow. And um, that, to me, was the author doing just a wonderful job of bringing it back to you know the heart of, of what this book is about, which is the loss of life of a young person. Right. And I mean, that's just Kekla Magoon again. I think she writes women's voices so beautifully, um, and Vernicia and Redima especially, um, in this section particularly. Absolutely. Um, and Jenica, we have another um, section on, and she talks about really feeling possessed by Noodle. It's probably one of the first times we really see her start to push back against him and and start to question if this is the healthiest thing for her. Of course, you and I feel it's not. Right. Um, because we still continue to dislike Noodle. Um, and Noodle gets pushed in front of the cameras in this section and asked to do a little bit of a impromptu press conference. Right. Um, I mean... I guess that Brick just thought that Noodle was a good face for the Kings in this section, um, going putting him up in. I mean, Noodle didn't want to. Right. Um, he still is very indifferent towards Tariq's death. Um, it really kind of messed up his whole his whole deal he has going on here. Um, so it was really interesting seeing Noodle kind of. I mean, he he liked being on camera a little bit too much. Yeah. Yeah, another thing in the section that bothered me was the section of um, Brian Trellis, mm. um, who who really views Tariq as a, a thug, um, and he has this line about looking at I think it's, he's looking at Jack Franklin with a white to white man glance. I thought, what in the world does that mean? Um, but he, it does seem like he is starting to doubt and really question his role. At one point, he says Tariq is dead because of me, mm-hmm. and, and that. Led me to believe maybe he's starting to have second guesses about his role and everything. Brian is such an enigma for me. Mm-hmm. Um, from the beginning, I mean, the first time you're introduced to Brian, he's the person who stops Tariq as he's leaving the store because he thinks that Tariq was stealing something. And from the beginning, he's a confusing character because you have half of the characters who see him as a white man and the other half view him as a light-skinned black man. Um, so Brian, I think, is one of the only characters who... You never quite get a clear picture of him, mm-hmm. um, and I think that he's written that way on on purpose. I think that he's very much is straddling that line of, did Tariq deserve to die? Did he not deserve to die? Is Brian Trellis a member of this community? Is he on kind of Jack Franklin's side? Um, and yeah, I still don't really know where I stand on Brian. Brian's going on TV in the section as well, mm-hmm. and is interviewed on a local station and they refer to it as him intervening in a gang altercation Mm -hmm. um and i just thought where in the world do you get 
that narrative from um, from what we know and from what we're we're reading. And Brian himself sort of feels like this is a little too much. This mm-hmm. is a little over the top. Right. Um, another interesting character that we see again this character relationship we see this section is Kimberly and the Reverend Sloan. Mm-hmm. Um, Kimberly really doesn't feel like he's taking advantage of her. Um, and is really starting to to want more from from the reverend who I think Al is starting to question um, his role in this too politically. Mm-hmm. And maybe he's starting to to there are a couple sec- sections where he's like, I, maybe I'm too I've done this too many times and I'm too cold and indifferent to what's actually to the act to the to the situation at hand. I'm I'm too focused on my own political agenda here. I think this is where we first kind of see Kimberly's aspirations of what mm-hmm. she believes that the Reverend can do for her um and for her life. Um I mean it's just kind of another I love Kimberly as a character, mm-hmm. but it's just kind of another example of people using this horrible tragic event and just kind of let's see what we can get out of it for ourselves. Um, and I think that the Reverend Kimberly Noodle, the Kings, mm-hmm. pretty much everyone in this in this novel, with the exception of Tariq's family, Tyrell and Jenica, pretty right. much are are just trying to use this situation for their own gain. For their own gain. Yeah, Jenica actually has this has this really haunting depiction of Tyrell's. Uh, I'm sorry, of Tariq's last moments mm. um, in this section, and it's interesting to see she has more guilt about his death than either Jack Franklin or Brian Trellis. She absolutely really. does, yeah. She, she keeps she repeating about um, that she's the one who took in his last, last breath. breath. Yeah. yeah. She feels really connected to him as a result. Um, and it's almost part of a gang fight yeah. with, with Tyrell on the way to a party at Bricks. And I think this is where we start to see her things turn for her. Yeah, what a scary scene. Yeah. For Jenica and Tyrell both. Who... I think finally this is what they when they when she especially realizes I don't want any part of this. Yeah, this is not the life for me. Yeah, um, and I was really proud of her for making that realization. Absolutely. Um, one thing we also have to talk about in this section is the knife. Oh, absolutely! Um, we finally find out where it came from. We finally find out where it came from. It was Junior's knife. Mm-hmm. Um, he gives it to Tariq for safekeeping, and there's just a beautiful, brilliant line on page two thirty four. Junior's questioning um, the events of the, the night. He says, were you armed, Tariq Johnson? Where's the gun, Tariq Johnson? And even without it, they still find a way to convict. Mm-hmm. Even without hard evidence of, of him having any role in his own death, they still find a way to find him responsible for his own death. And I think that's just a very, very haunting passage. Absolutely. Uh, and then poor Tina, of course, cuts herself. She night. does when she finds it in... Tariq's room, but of course hides it mm-hmm. because she knows. Smart Tina. Smart, smart Tina knows that that will only. I mean, it's not doing anyone any harm now, and it's only going to further tarnish her her brothers um, in death if somebody finds it, um, because there's nobody around to explain it anymore. Junior is locked up, and Tariq is of course dead. Absolutely. So she she is a good little sister and hides it. And one of the key themes, I think, in this section, as we, we briefly touched on, is the people who start to manipulate and use Tariq's death for their own personal political agendas, be it mm-hmm. the gangs, be it um, Reverend Sloan. Um, and uh, we start to see a little bit of uh, a movement from them. You know, Reverend Sloan kind of, kind of brings more awareness to the situation. But the community itself, I think, is starting to rally a little bit and mm-hmm. push back and ask questions. 
Um, and in this podcast, we actually have uh, a very special guest to talk with us a little bit about community organization and community engagement, particularly in Lexington in the 1960s. Um, and that is uh, joining us today will be Mr. Jim Sleet. We are here with uh, a legend on the north end of Lexington. Uh, especially if you visit the Northside Library at all, you know Mr. Jim Sleet. He's our special guest today on the podcast. So welcome, Mr. Sleet. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to, to kind of talk to you a little bit to give some historical context for what's happening in the book. Um, of course, a young, a young man has been shot, a young African-American man, and the community really rallies and begins to protest the way it was handled both by the police and the way that... Um, um, sort of the, the, the violence in the community and the gang life in the community and, and, and the, the neighborhood starts to kind of rally and fight back against a lot of that. Um, and one of the things we see is they start to have rallies and marches. Um, as someone who's lived in Lexington for a really long time, um, I know you were active in the civil rights movement in Lexington in the 60s. Can you give us a little bit of information about that and what your role in that was? Well, um, I just come back from the military, five years, three months, and 17 days, planning on making it a career, but decided not to for a number of reasons. Um, you have to understand during this same period, the United States Army was segregated, didn't integrate until the Vietnam War. And we had a few units that was mixed, but during the war, everybody was mixed up. And... Um, the government saw fit to write a plan called the King Alfred Plan. And what this plan did was allow commanders to recirculate black troops back into the front line so that they would be killed off and not bring their fighting skills back to the states. And um, Lexington, <coughs> excuse me, Lexington was fortunate in one respect. Uh, our people wasn't quite as nasty as it was in other areas. Um, Cicero, Illinois, for example, when blacks marched there, they even brought their grannies out on gurneys to spit on them and, and call them names. But uh, the South seemed to have been a little more restrained. You'd have the same thing but everybody wasn't involved in it. Now, <clears throat> a lot of our civil rights workers, like Dr. Abby Marlette, who taught at the university and almost lost her career for her stance against racism, Anne and Carl Braden in Louisville, who sold their house uh, to a Negro and was accused of being a communist. And, if people perceived you to be a, com a communist, you'd stand a, a darn good chance of being lynched. And a white person breaking the taboo would definitely stand a good chance of being lynched. <clears throat> I, I saw an article in the paper a few months ago about Chief Hale and his views on what was going on. And he was actually sympathetic. And Chief Hale was the chief of police, chief of police here police in uh, Lexington, probably in, up in the seventies. Um, he was okay. We, he was just a good old country boy, but he wasn't as, 
as mean and nasty as a lot of people. Um, one of the things I did when I got out, I went to work at Kentucky Village, and I was concerned about all these kids coming in. There was nothing for them. So there was a chaplain out there by the name of Quams uh, who went to the Lexington Theological Seminary, and he worked with a guy by the name of Craig Fredrickson, who ran church community services, uh, the Disciples of Christ Church, and a few other churches would put money into projects in the inner city. And I worked in the inner city, mainly Taylorstown, and a little bit in Smithtown. Taylorstown is between Broadway and Lime, 4th and 6th Street. And I worked over there. We were able to get the Phyllis Wheatley Y building for a dollar a year. A man by the name of Stuart Euston, a wonderful man, um, was able to get us a hundred and some thousand dollars to renovate the Phyllis Wheatley Y building. We were able to get transit students to come in and help tutor. And as a result, we had about 15 or 20 kids that were able to go on to school and, and do something with their lives and do something for the community. Um, after working in that area for a couple of years, I wanted to do some other things. And we were, we were going back into like Smithtown trying to organize them, but community action was blocking us because they were getting all this federal money and we were getting nothing except what we got locally. I carried garbage two and three days a week for my income and I wasn't expecting somebody to pay me to go help my people, you know. And then we started working with younger people. They were disillusioned. The schools had lied to them about who owned what. So we started doing research methodology at UK's library. And these kids always wanted to know who ran Lexington. So when they started doing research on who the lawyers represent with Martindale and Hubble, uh, who owned this, who was on this board, who was on that board, and they were saying, well, they've been telling us, you know. I said, well, hey, you keep reading, you know. <laughs> and they'd read and get upset and get frustrated. And out of that, that was directly tied to the housing policy in Fayette County. In Fayette County, we had a black physician by the name of Dr. Hammonds, and he wanted to buy a house. Well, the only house he could buy had to be in another Negro area like Haskins Drive or Breckenridge Street, you know where that is. Uh, it was the only place he could buy. But see, I had all these young white voices, and we were talking. Do you think that's bad? We'd ride down the streets, and they'd say, well, why can't he move over here? He got enough money. Look at that house, 150000 You know, as a doctor, he got the money. But money wasn't a question. For him, he had plenty of money. So they went back and asked their parents, who were doctors and things, and Dr. Phil Cross. So the doctors and things got together, and, and they went to meetings and started raising hell, and said, and, and, how can you do this? You know, here's a physician in Fayette County, and the only house he can buy 
is the same house a white man making thirty-eight thousand can buy, but you'll sell it to him for one hundred and fifty in that same neighborhood. But you won't even do that, you know. And um, we got that underway, and we we had a lot of projects going. Um, I was I was trying to think of oh one one of the projects we had going, we went into the churches and said look. We got kids that have no skills, no nothing, and you've got farms and things. If you could take them under your wing and 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 bring them out on the farm and show them what they need to do to do this, that we had some really nice results from that. Attitudes were changed, you know. What man? I ain't never been around no black people. You know, God. It says in the Bible that God put a curse on you. You know. And weaned him down. He took a young brother, and the uh, young brother got in some trouble, not, not anything serious. He went and got him out and uh, sent him to school to be a tailor, you know. And he said, if I thought you'd stick around, I'd leave you my farm. <laughs> but we, we were able to do these types of, of things. Now, Lexington's always been a giving community. You talk about some of the education outreach that you did and the, and the work that you did seemed to cross color lines. Um, and do you feel like that was instrumental in getting a lot of the change done in Lexington? You talked about the uh, housing, getting the housing policy uh, changed. Yeah, but there was a whole lot of other people pushing at the same time. And we weren't pushing against each other. We were working together. But yeah, when you work across color lines, you can do anything, you know. And, and that happens. You had people like Mimi Hunt, uh, God's Pantry. Um, when I was at the House of All Souls down on um, Second Street, run by the Presbytery, I, I worked there and went out with the people, helped them get food stamps if they had to go to court. Went to court when the judges knew who I was, you know, did all sorts of things. And we had went to pick up some cheese, a commodity cheese. Oh, the most <laughs> wonderful thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so we pick up the cheese. And the people they had working there was the nastiest people I'd ever seen in my life. I'm, I'm oh, Lord, I'm going to wring somebody's neck. So I called Stuart up and talked to him. Then I talked to um, Joe Graves' aunt that built Shakerstown and told her what happened. Then Rita Wright, who was her sister, Bank of Lexington, I said, you know, I need you all to do me a great favor if you all could go out here on Georgetown Street to Community Action and pick up the commodities with some of these people next week on Wednesday at 9 o'clock. Oh, we'd be glad to. I said, now, wait a minute, I'm not finished. Now, what I need you to do is go to Goodwill's uh, uh, Salvation Army and find some of the scrubbiest clothes you can find, wash them, uh, uh, put something on your teeth so it looks like they're gone, and go out there with all the paper. They had the paperwork and everything, <coughs> and they went out there and was helping these people. They were treated so rudely that Mimi Hunt said, 
I'm going to say a special prayer tonight. Nobody should go through this, and we're going to do something about it. And she started God's Pantry. Oh, wow. You know, but it was experiences like that, being exposed. That was with church community service. We could pick up the phone and get 150 or 700 volunteers, and they'd come into town. What uh, places in Lexington, I think people might be surprised to hear you know, we hear about segregation, we don't think about it in our own town. What kinds of places in Lexington were segregated? All of them. When you were young. Almost all of them. Um, it wasn't as bad as, as some, it depends on where it was. There was a black restaurant down on Upper and Vine. Um, woman could cook. Whites went in there to eat. Uh, they had a white castle down on Lime and Maine, and they found uh, cat claws in it. He left town in the middle of the night. Um, it was a, it was a, formerly a White Castle. I'm serious. And when you went to the Ben Ally, you'd go in there and get you a hamburger and go up three flights of stairs to watch the movie. Um, you couldn't go to a hotel, you know. Um, even the drive-in was segregated. You could park your car in a certain area, and and, um, and the schools didn't officially desegregate till 1970, like 72 or 73. Right. I read just the other day. Yeah, but Kentucky school had been integrated at one point, and then they got into power and closed the educational system with black and whites under the same roof. One thing, I know you're really involved in uh, the lives of your grandchildren and their friends. How do you think, what challenges does this generation face, and how has it changed since you were working in, in Lexington? Well, I see a number of, of, of changes. It may not necessarily be for the good. Um, I think my grandkids are going to do fine. I think they've got their mothers and fathers and grandparents and aunts and uncles uh, who are involved. Even my wife's family who doesn't live here is involved in our kids' life. I mean, it's not an everyday thing. But they call and talk to them about what's going on in school and this sort of thing. And Tila, she loves to read. Takira is already planning what she's going to do. Uh, she's going to be a neurologist. Believe it. Um, Tila saying she's going to be a lawyer. And as much as they read, I mean, they know her. Lands down, Tate's Creek. They know all the libraries <laughs> and can show you how to get there. Now, that's their mother had a thing about taking the kids after school, and they go to the library for half an hour, an hour, and read. Do you think we're missing more educational opportunities for youth today? I know you talked about some of the. Um, kind of trade programs that you had people going out working with farmers and learning skills. Right. Do you think we're missing some of that today? Oh, oh, definitely. You know, we used to have the Neighborhood Job Corps 
And every year they would they would hire maybe five thousand kids locally. And then you had other people that would bring kids on board at at their expense, but everybody felt good because churches was was um, pushing it and social action committees were pushing it and you felt good about that. One of the things we see in the book that we're we're talking about with this podcast is um, the young men in the book, as you said, some of them are lacking are lacking role models, and they're also lacking kind of direction. And right. even there's a sense of hopelessness that mm-hmm. pervades. And one of our one of our favorite characters is in the book is a young man named Tyrell, who is so smart and desperately wants to get out of you know the the neighborhood where he's living and go to college, but he feels like he can't escape. He feels like he just can't escape this neighborhood. He can't escape the gangs. He can't escape the cycle of violence. Right. He just can't get out. And that's, you know, how do, we, how do we break that in young people today? How do we give them a sense of hope and a sense yeah. of, of... In some areas, we have a program we call uh, Rites of Passage. It's, it's very structured. Um, in Louisville, a man by the name of Chuck Cowan Master Coward, who also teaches black history. Uh, he was one of the men that Malcolm tutored and requested that they go back and learn about their culture and learn about their role in the martial arts. And he teaches a martial arts called Enrique Kupagami, which is very rhythmic. It's an African martial art. We used to do that here with Ann Grundy and Chester and uh, other people. We used to use the Y on Chestnut Street, and we'd do a Nia Day camp for two weeks during the summer, and we teach the African culture, and, and we take them through, teach them dancing, martial arts, the social structure in a village, and the kids really got into it. And one year we went through all this, then we come back from Jacobson Park, the UK, by the student center, had two big buses parked up there, and two big vans, the runners, and loaded up, and we went to Canada on the Underground Railroad. Um, when, when you look at, at what's going on, um, we, we're coming up short. Now, there's a lot of things going on. I can't say they're not. Some of them are better than we had before. Toyota, for example, hires a lot of young people at 10 bucks an hour, and they go to school. You had somebody from Job Corps who wrote for your newspaper, maybe. I don't know much about Job Corps. Um, that was in the 70s. Uh, uh, probably Paul Hill, mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah. And what was Job Corps? Job Corps was uh, a program by the government that, well, they still got it. You can go to uh, Frenchburg and several other places and take up welding, auto mechanics, uh, electricity, um, computers, and they give you stipends and and buy your clothes and and all that. well, I'm not familiar with the schedule now, but you can go up to by Walmart, and on weekends, especially after holiday, uh, the buses come and pick up the kids. There, there's a probably thirty or forty kids 
they catch the bus up there. So that might be happening in 10, 12 places in Lexington and other places. So that's, that's still a possibility. Um, I know the YMCA has the Black Achievers program where they right. take kids and, and work on, and Upward Bound does something similar, work on yeah. college readiness skills and job readiness. Well, we appreciate you sitting down with us today yeah. and telling us a little bit about Lexington then and Lexington now. And Absolutely. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Yeah. Sweet. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, well, that's it for episode three of our One Book, One podcast. Join us next week for our fourth and final episode. You can check us out at www.lexpublib.org backslash onebook2016, and there you can find links to our previous podcast, as well as information about our big, exciting uh, summit coming up on April 23rd at the Northside Branch Library. Uh, we're calling it Rising Up, a community conversation about violence, and that will take place on Saturday the 23rd from 1 to 4 at Northside. We also have a full series of events. You can pick up a brochure from any of our locations and see what's going on. Uh, and another exciting thing we have is an art contest. Alexa, you want to tell them a little bit more about that? So going on throughout the month of April, we are going to have uh, grade 6 through 12 um, create art in any format for us. Um, it can be paint, it can be watercolor, pencils, whatever it is you're most comfortable creating art in, and you can turn it into any library location. Um, and throughout the month of April, we'll be having that going on. We are going to display the art digitally on our website, and selected pieces will go on display in the new Eastside Library location on our gallery wall. Um, so that's something to be looking out for as well. Thank you so much, Alexa, and stay tuned next week, you guys. Thanks, Jenny.